0: to episode three of Buena Vista Socialist Club. Uh, we are back again. Uh, you have me, Andrew. We also have Ben McClay. Hello. Uh, we also have Lucy Valentine. G'day. And we have a guest here from Texas. We have Everett, uh, who you might know on Twitter as Trilburn. He's the host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, which you can find on iTunes. Uh, you can also find him on Twitter at Age of Napoleon. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and we're very happy to have him here. How are you doing, Everett? Howdy, folks. Very nice to have you here. Uh, We've asked Everett to come on today and have a chat to us about uh, reactionary conservatism, conservatism as reactionary activism. Uh, Maybe you could start us off with kind of the origins of conservatism, where that whole political movement comes from.
1: All right. So um, I would trace uh, conservatism... uh, back to the French Revolution Uh, basically it was a reaction to the French Revolution Um, in the 1790s uh, the French Republic was able to just own every single other country in Europe and basically that was because uh, they had politics the government had a ideological relationship with its people the other European powers didn't have that and uh, they weren't able to mobilize their populations uh, for wars, effectively. And so they needed something. You know, I mean, obviously, they were still opposed to these uh, radical ideas from the revolution, but they needed something to, uh, you know, an alternative, uh, an ideological alternative to what the French were presenting. And uh, what they came up with were yeah. um, conservatism and uh, reactionary politics, which are sort of different but linked, I would say. Um Conservatism basically accepts a lot of the sort of basic uh, premises of the Enlightenment and uh, is sort of similar to uh, radical politics in that it promises a better future for people. Um, The difference between conservatism and radical politics is conservatism says, actually, if you want a better future, you have to stick with us, with the status quo, with the establishment. But um, Mm. there is room for change there. There is, you know, some elements of modernity there. It's just a... Modernity that preserves the status quo. Um, reaction, I would say is different in that reaction rejects totally the Enlightenment and modernity and says, No, those old power relationships we had were actually fine. Um, you should mobilize yourself to you know, fight for the king of the church. Uh, politics is bullshit. Um, don't listen to people who want to lead you 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 know, you have you have no relationship with uh, the powerful other than uh, subject and master.
0: I uh, I remember reading something recently that was sort of positing the idea that uh, that conservatives in that strain uh, more operate on the idea that the universe is governed by by an immutable set of rules, you know, that that God is real and in charge, and that you know kings are imbued with um with with power just by the status of their birth, and that those things are just the way the way the universe is.
1: Right, and I mean, obviously, when you believe that you know, that allows very little room for anything ever to change because almost any change inevitably will change the power structure. And conservatives are okay with that. Conservatives, um, you know, they're okay with change. They just want change to happen in a way that preserves existing power structures, more or less. Uh, reactionaries want those power structures to stay absolutely the same in of in every way.
0: So um, did things pretty much continue along like this until we get into you know, our understanding of modern contemporary life?
1: Well, more or less, um, the thing is, you know, reactionary politics lost a lot of ground because maybe I'm biased here because I'm not a reactionary, but the world changes inevitably and, you know, those old systems of dukes and barons and lords – you know, after a certain point, there was no going back to that, just practically speaking.
0: That's what's always struck me as sort of so unusual at its core about conservatism, where, like you were saying, you're, effect- you're effectively asking people, just just keep things how they are. Uh, any change that you see happening, just kind of ignore that. We'll, you know, we'll get it under control. We even had um, uh, our prime minister in exile, Tony Abbott. <laughs> so he, he comes out periodically to make little pronouncements uh, to the press. And they're almost always aimed at significantly undermining Malcolm Turnbull, who is currently prime minister, who had deposed him. And he came out recently, and he was criticising Malcolm Turnbull for, um, for you know, not not effectively running his government as an opposition or a, or a re-election campaign, which was you know Tony's whole speciality. And he said, uh, you know, if I was if I was leader at the moment, if only. Uh, he said, "You know, I'd I'd be running things with this with the following platform." And he listed off a handful of things that that he would be selling to people, and they were they were all like, you know, cut company taxes, abolish the the human rights council, <laughs> uh, abolish the safe schools anti bullying program, <laughs> uh, and there were t- there were two other things, and all of them in essence were stop doing a thing or make it how it was before. And I just, I'm I'm always so perplexed by how anybody hears that and thinks to themselves, there's a man of vision. There's the person <laughs> to carry us, carry us into the bold new future. You know, when your entire platform is, here's what we're going to do. Nothing. I like that Australia's conservatives have
2: gotten themselves into a position where they're frequently at odds with human rights councils. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, the, the things they're pursuing are where they're just being like, oh if these human rights watchdogs keep being pains in the asses to us, oh, like, you surely... We'll just get rid point, of the Human Every Rights bit.
0: Council.
2: <laughs> yeah, you'd want to, like, reflect on what you're doing and just be like, man, like maybe we are the bad guys. Surely <laughs> that has to happen at some point.
1: I think it goes to show that, you know, conservatives and radicals have inherently different relations to their politics and have inherently different things that they want from politics. And, uh, you know, that's why that seems so bizarre to for you know sicko lefties like us but you know that's (laughs) quite natural to most conservatives and that's why conservatives do that all over the world
2: yeah in terms of having conservatism as a force that's there to sort of maintain the status quo how does small government government conservatism fit into that you know in theory these people are trying to take away government power is it other systems of power that they're trying to perpetuate
1: yeah i think that's exactly it that you know they feel like this You know, governments have become a lot more democratic over the last, you know, 150 years or so, and that puts people ill at ease because that's another force in society, you know, that's the same reason they don't like unions. It's a force in society that can um, challenge existing authority, which is basically family, um, and then either, you know, feudal relationships or um, boss-employee relationships, Uh, and then, of course, you know, the, like, patriarchy, like, within a family or you know carrying over to society with mm. you know adult, older adult men in charge uh, of younger adult men and women and children.
0: Yeah, it, it makes me think of how um, Tony Abbott so much of the time described himself as a traditionalist as well. Like that was very often the, um, the, the real sort of classification that he gave himself as a conservative. And um, yeah, that really that really just sunk into me as as just being the essence of, Keep it how it is, how it's been done, how it's always been done.
1: That's how it's supposed to be.
3: It's the best way to improve society, really, is to keep doing everything exactly the same way as we used to do it. it makes so much sense.
1: But that, I think, Ooh. is the um, that's the inherent contradiction in conservatism because we live in a world where that's not possible. You know, things are always mm-hmm. changing constantly. So conservatives have, um, and especially reactionaries, have this very ahistorical um fantasy version of the past and that's what they mean when they're talking about tradition you know going back to actually how things were in the 50s is impossible for a million reasons Um, but they have this vision of how things were and this that they're trying to sell people and that's what they mean when they talk about tradition is these invented traditions
2: makes me think of all those boomer memes that are like back in my day when i was a kid we didn't wear bike helmets (laughs) and it was like we didn't have to get vaccinated or whatever you just like yeah, you didn't. Died. And shit sucked. Like, yeah, your kids just fucking broke their skulls <laughs> open all the time because no one was wearing fucking bike helmets. Like, this idea that things were better—people
0: had polio and it was fucked
2: up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this feels like having your personal politics influenced solely by nostalgia. Just being mm. like, well, I remember being happy as a child, so I assume the fact that back then black people couldn't go on the same bus as me <laughs> was good was what made think. my childhood good. <laughs>
1: Um, so Pat Buchanan, who's one of our great American uh, reactionary politicians, uh, he, he grew up in Washington, D.C., which uh, for those of you who don't know, Washington, D.C. is like an extremely stratified city where there's kind of a it's roughly through its history been half white, half black. And there's a extremely privileged uh, and powerful, you know, ruling class and the black underclass in D.C. is some of the poorest people in the United States. And uh, Pat Buchanan wrote this memoir about growing up in D.C. that literally was that. I mean, it was literally, well, I was pretty happy, and so maybe these black people didn't mind, you know, being in segregated schools. <laughs> I, I seemed to enjoy it. Mm.
2: Uh, I think that's what a lot of our conservatives use as a justification for their stance on being against marriage equality as well. It's because they're like, well, I'm fine when we don't have it, so I assume it's not a problem mm. for anyone else. <laughs> just that's their sole justification for all of these stances on social issues be like wow i can't see how it's a big deal so i can't imagine it is for anyone
1: well when you think that you know being against or, or at least skeptical of change is kind of their animating principle it i mean yeah it makes sense
0: of course it's such a conflict with like the actual reality of politics in australia particularly i mean uh like it's very much the same thing in America where, you know, in Australia, the right-wing, the the Liberal Party just seems to kind of have this mantle of the responsible economic mm-hmm. managers, you know, which, which in Australia is mainly linked to um, us having a huge, like, mining resources boom, um, not really taking advantage of it, <laughs> giving a lot of it away in stimulus and tax cuts and stuff like that. But it gave this appearance that... Um, that the liberals who were in power at the time were absolutely fantastic at managing the economy and so they still kind of get that that pass from people to this day
3: and it's bullshit it's complete factual bullshit <laughs> yeah
0: yeah they they do they you know the the current government seems absolutely clueless about anything to do with any fucking policy like um not delivering anything they're not doing anything they're not coming even remotely close to what seemed to be their entire, you know, animus, which was uh, balancing the budget. That's a thing they've just kind of forgot about and don't care about anymore. But um, but yeah, still they just kind of seem to have this, that, that thing where people look at them and go, oh, well, that's, that's your deal. That's what you're all about. Even if they're not actually delivering that at any point. To
2: some extent, that narrative comes from people being not that bright, and assuming that because there are two major parties, they must be, they must balance out in some way. You're like, well, if they're both there, they obviously have to be good. So because one's good on, I mean, not even really good in Australia, but if one's better for social issues, we just have to assume that means the other are better for economic policy, because otherwise, why would we have two similar choices? Whereas, <laughs> I mean, the reality of the situation is, no, they're shit on social issues, they're shit on economic policy. They're not being dicks because you have to be a dick to get the job done, they're being dicks
0: because... They're all dicks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, because like we were saying, that's that's kind of the essence of the political movement though, is uh, here's here's all of these things. We're gonna do this stuff because we should keep things the way they are, the way they used to be, the way they should be. And um, you know, you can in turn sort of justify that like we were saying before, of saying, Well, you know, I I was fine twenty years ago, I was fine thirty years ago, my parents were fine fifty years ago. So I assume everybody else will be fine, and I think any time that you then provide the evidence that other people were not fine uh, forty years ago or fifty years ago, and that there are whole other classes of society who are not doing well at all under this um, under this type of governance, I think that's when you when you get to turn to the part of conservatism that insists on individualism. And freedom of choice and, you know, well, if things aren't working out for you, it's probably because you made the wrong choices somewhere along the line. Like
3: not being born rich. Uh, it's
0: probably because you haven't done the right things. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. You weren't born rich. You you made the choice to <laughs> to be born into poverty or <laughs> any of the other situations that, that deeply affect mm-hmm. people. <laughs> Maybe you could talk a little bit, Everett, about that kind of um, American conservative boom through, through like the 60s you know, the the real uh, Nixon kind of conservatism and how that sort of transformed into, into neoconservatism, I guess.
1: Yeah, I would, I mean, obviously, I mean, maybe I'm just, you know, as an American observing Australian politics, I see a lot of parallels with American conservatism and Australian conservatives. I mean, maybe that's just because I am American, but I hear that from you guys a lot too, so um, I think I'm onto something there. And basically, you know, American conservatism, um, first of all, I'll say this, part of the reason people in Australia adopt is there are some similarities between the U S and Australia. Uh, You know, they're both places that were colonized by white settlers um, in the relatively, relatively recent past. So there's no, you know, like feudal hierarchy, you know, there's no like Duke of South Mm. Dakota or like, you know, Baron of Ballarat who could like seize power and make everyone work (laughs) as his serfs. So they've got to look for something else um, if they're going to have that real hardcore conservative politics. Um, But I think the difference is, you know, in America, our kind of big conservative boom that started in the late 50s and then really came to the forefront in the 60s, that was about uh, resistance to civil rights. And there is just nothing Mm. I don't think in Australian culture or economics or politics that can compare to black Americans. Yeah. Um. And there's nothing comp- comparable to the civil rights movement.
0: Well, we we were talking about this earlier and saying that um, that yeah, I think the the comparison points in Australia would uh, would probably be more appropriate to you know ab- Aboriginal people as as analogous to um Native Americans. Yeah, just in terms of ha- having us come in, wipe out the population, and then dominate them from that point. Yeah. In a pretty unpleasant manner.
1: Yeah, and people generally, I mean. The, you know the idea is that people want them to go away so they can have the land there's never been a as far as i know there's never been a place in australia where like you know 60% of the population are held in bondage so that they can you know be the engine of the economy mm-hmm. um, and that system created a lot of pathologies i would say in a, the american political mind that um and that's i think one of the biggest driving factors uh, of uh, that new right politics is resistance to those people joining society and becoming part of the political system. Um, and so I think that's some of the weirdness you see with Australian conservatives is they're trying to carry over these ideas that have a resonance here to those racial politics and they don't have the same resonance in Australia.
0: No I mean um, we certainly shouldn't look past the fact that you know um, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of Australian people don't actually realize that there was a bunch of slavery in Australia. Mm-hmm. We also had the whole uh, population of Chinese people who came and built um, the sort of railroad across the middle of the country. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people just kind of don't even don't even realize or take into account any of that sort of stuff. But as you said, it's not that that was a very I think it was a very temporary sort of transitional um, phase during settlement here, and like you said, I don't think it's it's ever been it's ever been the engine of our economy. You know, it's never been uh, the kind of thing where I don't you know we weren't we weren't importing people, we yeah. enslave them <laughs> yeah. or anything like that.
1: We're number one again. Sorry, guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh,
1: <laughs> so I just wanted to read uh, just to round that out. I wanted to read a real quick quote from this guy. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of him, Lee Atwater. He was sort of like Carl mm-hmm. Rove yeah. for George Bush's father. He was this ultra racist, like South Carolina mm. political okay. operative who uh, George H.W. Bush was like this kind of moderate, like posh guy from New England. And so he hired Lee Atwater to kind of get his image going for some of the like, you know, down South people. And uh, <laughs> here's what Lee Atwater said about this stuff uh, near the end of his life when he was like trying to repent. You start out in 1954 by saying, N-word, N-word, N-word. Oh my God! Not, not the word he used, but I'm censoring myself. <laughs> by 1968, you can't say N-word. That hurts you, backfires. So you stay stuff like uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting abstract. Now you're talking about cutting taxes, and all these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And a byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. We want to cut. This is much more abstract than the busing thing and a hell of a lot more abstract than N word N word. So there you go. Wow. Plain English laid out. <laughs> mm, mm.
0: <laughs> Lovely man. Was, um, was, did he work with Nixon at all?
1: Uh, actually I think before Bush, he mostly was doing stuff for the Republican national party. And then, uh, Uh, for some Senate candidates uh, in the South. He actually um, one of his first campaigns was he beat uh, Zach Galifianakis' uncle. Okay. Uh, That was like one of his big breakout moments. He just like totally smeared this guy, you know, Greek immigrant's uh, son uh, you know, as soft on race and not looking out for white people.
3: Wow.
2: And one day his nephew would go on to do a bunch of (laughs) hangover movies.
0: Obviously pretty damning. (laughs) Yeah. So I suppose, um, that, that probably, you know, explains that transition into neoconservatism in the same sort of way. I mean, moving, moving out of Nixon's Southern strategy into the more, the more refined racism. Yeah. I mean,
1: people forget, um, when, uh, Reagan who, you know, everyone hailed as this new kind of Republican, he launched his campaign in a town called Philadelphia, Mississippi, um, which, uh, Mostly famous. I mean, it's a tiny town. There's nothing there. It's mostly famous for, if you've ever seen the movie Mississippi Burning, it's uh, people in that Mm. town murdered a bunch of civil rights workers. And that's what the town's known for. It really has nothing else. I mean, it's like 5,000 people. And he went to that town and started talking about states' rights to this crowd of people, you know, some of whom were involved in that, killing these, I mean, they were boys, really. Um, And that's where Reagan went. And he didn't say anything about the civil rights movement. He talked about states' rights and cutting taxes and stuff. But people got the message.
0: When did he coin the the welfare queen expression?
1: Uh, I mean, he didn't coin that so much. He was one of the first people to popularize it, though. Mm. Uh, And that was when he was um, uh, governor of California, which he was a. His uh, time as governor of California was extremely racially tinged. There were a lot of riots. mostly in uh, black neighborhoods related to civil rights stuff. And he pretty much ran on a platform of, uh, you know, keeping keeping them down and keeping down the sort of liberal hippies who enabled them, uh, of which there are a lot in California. Um, and, you know, he ran as this moderate for president, but when he was governor of California, like, he would call uh, black men bucks, pardon the expression, which, uh, I mean, it's not quite like the N-word, but it's certainly in that ballpark.
0: I wonder, um, would this have been from around the era where um, Clint Eastwood was doing Dirty Harry? You know, yes. uh, <laughs> violent, violent cop smashing hippies. Yeah, that's
1: exactly like if you want like the film version of this whole backlash we're talking about. A friend of mine actually grew up in a a, a very Italian uh, Italian neighborhood in New York, which um, a lot of those kind of middle class Italians in New York very much skew conservative because they kind of. You know, they don't like some of the aspects of city life that involve dealing with poor people and non-white people. And uh, her, uh, her dad told me a story about going to see um, the uh, Charles Bronson movie Death Wish in a theater out there. Yeah. And he said that he started to get genuinely a little freaked out because people were like whooping and hollering and like shouting and cheering during it every time he'd kill someone. Because they were, you know, they wanted someone to do that to the people around them.
0: Well, yeah, if I remember correctly, Death Wish was inspired by actual events yeah. in New York wow. during like a '70s crime wave stuff, where there was a guy who was very, he was very paranoid, and he started carrying a gun around with him. Oh, I don't, I don't remember it precisely, but there were a group of you know young black guys on a train, and I can't remember if they either, you know, asked him for money or were hassling him. Or if they weren't doing anything, and he pulled his gun, um, they ran away, and he shot a bunch of them in the back. As they ran off, and he paralyzed one of them. I can't remember if he killed another one. Jesus. But um, clearly, somebody so, somebody read that news story, and they went, "What an American hero!" <laughs> yeah. Let's get Charles Bronson to star in an adaptation of this. And if you watch the film now, it's um, it's fucked up it's it's a it's a very weird period it's a weird period of american cinema where there's just just yeah those genuinely like cheering on violent fascist tendencies kind of thing Mm -hmm. where you know you watch that movie and like his his i think in the first death wish um charles Bronson's uh wife wife gets killed gets killed or raped one of the two and then in the next movie another woman that he knows gets raped and then in the third movie he like meets a new woman and she gets raped Jesus Christ and um so in every movie yeah in every movie nothing happens to Charles Bronson but Um, some woman he has encountered is raped by a gang and that's upsetting enough to him to cause him to go on another violent spree that is
3: is most upsetting for the man that it doesn't happen to obviously
0: (laughs) exactly exactly so, yeah, in the first movie, you know, something happens to women that he knows. And, like, he goes out, I, I can't even remember whether it's at the start or the end of the movie that he kills these gang members. There's a very young uh, Lawrence Fishburne in that. But the rest of the movie is just kind of, he sees some young people on the street, and they go, eh, what's going on, old man? And he's like, this bang and just fucking murders people like it's not even
3: oh you're making it's not it sound even kind like of he's cool.
0: intervening or it's not like the crimes are related he just sees some people and goes you look pretty criminal and just murders them in the street oh, yeah so yeah. Um, yeah a very a very weird weird time
1: see that's the thing it's you know it's tradition it's and it's like where does tradition connect with you know this guy you know you, you, there's an there's some obscure steps between like an ideological response to the french revolution and you know this like crazy guy bl- blowing people away on the subway but um you know it's it's all it's all there it's all part of that same uh, school of thought mm.
0: well i suppose we could um we could kind of segue into some of the reading that you put me onto around this subject around um uh, cory robbins book uh, is it the reactionary mind
1: yeah great book
0: mm. so i i was doing a bit of reading about that and um yeah, it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting sort of prospect that he paints, which is uh, generally that the left wing's problem is that they see the right wing as all of these different splintered kind of movements. You know, they see evangelical Christians and they see nationalists and ultra nationalists and small government conservatives and all these different things. Whereas right? so he effectively argues that that they all come under the one umbrella, which is just conservatives who are busy reacting to anything changing
1: yeah and i think i mean in in some ways it's like it's so obvious right because i mean there's a reason our politics are organized along left and right because there's one side Mm. that's basically about trying to emancipate people from you know the condition that they're born into and then there's another side that says "Eh, not so fast and that's basically how our politics are organized And i think he does a very good job of you know laying that out doing the work
0: yeah, and I think, um, and I suppose um, around that sort of two thousands, um, I suppose it would have been post post uh, George Bush Junior. Uh, then you had the whole Tea Party movement, and that certainly seemed like the most the most sort of strong strong example of that bubbling up of like purely reactionary um, conservatism that America had seen for quite a while.
1: Yeah, but you know. That's the funny thing is people painted it as this kind of like insurgency and like, oh, there's these people out there in America who, you know, out in, out in the rural places and, and they're racist and, and they're, you know, much further right than the establishment. But, you know, the Tea Party was started, the guy, like the launching moment of it was when a guy who was a former securities trader went on a rant on the floor of the Chicago Commodities Exchange, I think it was. But, you know, this is not like a blue collar place. This is where... You know extremely wealthy people trade commodities it's you know the heart of establishment power and that's what launched it you know and then it was funded all the way by all these other groups that were you know are ultimately funded by a handful of extremely wealthy people and corporations and so what was kind of framed and presented itself as a grassroots thing uh, and being about kind of salt of the earth regular people was by and for from the very beginning these extremely powerful interests
0: well i suppose um from from over here what we saw of that in the media it was probably pretty easy to believe that it was um ordinary people because of just the optics of the whole thing like uh just the outfits everybody was out there in the tricorner hats (laughs) the don't tread on me flags (laughs) which a lot of great looks um some great signs that gave birth to the whole uh, sarah palin misfire yeah didn't it?
1: <laughs> although again sarah palin you know where'd she come from i mean she was a genuine salt of the earth fucking idiot but you know <laughs> she got picked by a bunch of like like wealthy like pundits and journalists um you know that's who mccain who advised mccain to pick her was uh this little like clique of you neoconservative know, writers basically most of whom you know a, live in you know penthouses in new york city these are not you know she didn't get picked by a rancher she got picked by again the establishment she's what the establishment thinks a south of the person is a fucking moron <laughs> <laughs>
0: well i mean she she has her own parallels i guess to um to you know the the currently vaguely resurgent one nation <laughs> party here mm. with um pauline hansen where i think and I mean, I, I guess the parallel that I would draw is that it's the same thing that happened last time. Pauline Hanson got elected to the Senate, and everybody went, "Whoa, here's this salt of the earth fucking moron," um, speaking out, speaking out for the people, and people voted for her in you know a very purely reactionary way, and she got in, and almost immediately imploded as a political force, mm. um, because she was absolutely incoherent.
3: Conservatives love that, though. Conservatives have this obsession with someone who's different from the political elite and they end up just putting forward these absolute fucking idiots who have no brains. But there's all these conservatives out there that are like, yeah, they say it like it is. They're someone of the people.
1: But the reason that th- that happens is this is these, that's what the elite thinks of us is that's you know, that's what that's what like someone who's sitting in I don't know, whatever the equivalent of a a fancy New York apartment, uh, fancy New York mm. penthouse, that's what they think. A regular person is like and so that's what they sell to regular people i mean there were there was a time in both of our country's history when that was not what people liked and not what people wanted you know i mean i'm here in texas this is like one of the most reactionary places in america um the populist party did really well here like 100 years ago which was like a like a kind of agrarian socialist like anti-elite political movement and that's who you know regular texans liked 100 years ago Um, There wasn't this advanced marketing mechanism to sell them on, you know, fucking idiots like Sarah Palin.
3: Yeah.
2: Basically, I think what they use as the marker for ordinary Australians over here is just incompetence. Like, that's it. That's (laughs) the only thing they know what an ordinary person doing politics is is when they're bad at it all the time. Like, uh, Mark Latham, who I I see you've become familiar (laughs) with recently, his marker of being like, And an ordinary Australian, despite the fact that he's like obscenely wealthy, was the second most powerful person in the country for a while, and is like has so many media gigs, it's just basically impossible to avoid him. Is that occasionally he goes to the pub? (laughs) (laughs) And like, that's it. That's where it ends. Like, well, we all drink, but he's like, no, but I I go to the pub, so I'm real. Like, no, you're not, man. You're getting paid $80,000 a year in pension by taxpayers. You've never shook hands with a real person in your life. Like it's just this absurd fantasy that because they're like shit at talking on TV and say dumb nonsense all the time, it's not that they're unfiltered. It's just that they literally have no idea what they're saying.
1: <laughs> but I think that that's only possible when you've got this kind of the force of a modern media empire behind someone like that. Because I bet you, you know, if an average person, you know, if, you, if an Australian from a hundred years ago met Mark Latham, they would probably think. Well, that guy seems fucking stupid, and I don't know what his deal is. What a weird guy, you know. Translated, obviously, but um, you know, that's. But you know, you can sell him when you've got the sophisticated media tools that people have now. You can sell someone like that as a regular guy, and people, you know, they don't have many other sources of information, and that's what they believe. Yeah.
0: Well, I think when Pauline Hanson started running for the Senate again, uh, you know, on the on the previous ticket that she got in on people people seemed just flabbergasted by how, how much mainstream media coverage she was getting and it wasn't just you know she wasn't just being interviewed on talking heads programs and that sort of stuff she she had like slots on you know the the friendly morning shows like on sunrise yeah. or today or whatever it was they had her on there getting a makeover <laughs> they were like ah oh, she's 50 now but look oh, at her she's oh, looking good again geez. she was on dancing with the stars
3: Oh my God, she was on but
0: Dancing with dancing the,
1: with stars. the stars. We had our our guy who was the uh, put it perspective. He's one of the guys who the House of Cards guy is based on, and he was a, okay. a Texas uh, congressman who was just you know this horribly corrupt. I mean, his nickname was the Hammer, which he encouraged people to call him that. So That tells you something. Tom Delay was his name, and he was he went to prison because he was found to have. I mean, just I mean the abuses of power and corruption. It was unbelievable but they let him on Dancing with the Stars.
0: <laughs> so insane,
1: <laughs> And people love it for some Why reason. Why would anyone want to watch Tom DeLay? Did he, could he dance? <laughs> uh, Rick Perry was a much better dancer, if you're talking about horrible <laughs> piece of shit Texas <laughs> politicians who were on Dancing with the Stars. Rick Perry was pretty good, he's an athletic guy. It's my favorite Wikipedia article. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Rick, Rick Perry's also right up there as um, someone who is a, an absolutely fucking incoherent politician. I'm sure we all remember him during that last, uh, the last debate he would have been in during the last presidential campaign where he said, if I'm elected, <laughs> I'm going to eliminate, what was it, like three or five government departments completely. And they said, okay, what are those? And he was like, uh, the Department of Education. <laughs> uh, and he just, that was it. He had absolutely <laughs> no idea what the... The three things he wanted to remember were...
1: conservatives here are constantly talking about which departments they're going to eliminate. Like, that's just in their discourse constantly. Like, the fact that he forgot that, you know, which he's probably been to a thousand talks and lectures where people have talked about that. There's actually, I mean, he was actually, I mean, he ran the state like a dictator for, like, he was the longest serving Texas governor in, I think, a century and a half. Fuck. I mean, he, he was just unstoppable here and then people here speculate that he was like on drugs or something when he ran for president because he just was i mean it was unrecognizable from the guy i mean he had the he had the state locked down arguably he still does i mean you know the, everyone in office here is one of his appointees or one of his proteges pretty much it's just astounding how he it's a lot easier when you have no real opposition you know i guess i guess to show you that
0: well look as long as he keeps passing laws that say that you know I can I can keep a tiger in my backyard <laughs> in Texas, then that's fine. Have, have you guys heard that that um apparently there are more there are more tigers in captivity in like private on private properties in Texas than there are in the rest of the world.
3: <laughs> where the fuck do you get a tiger from?
1: Oil money. That's all you need. It's wild. This state is so weird, guys. I don't know where the fuck
0: <laughs> you get a tiger from, but there are there are more of them. More of them in people's houses in Texas than there are wild in the world.
2: Wow! Like, how do you? Okay, so obviously you're putting a lot of money into buying your tiger. I assume there's a lot of upkeep involved Mm -hmm. in maintaining your tiger. How much joy do you reckon you can possibly get out of it? Because it's not like it would be fucking. It can't just like sit in your living room, right? Like you can't just be like, oh, I'm watching Netflix and like hanging out with my tiger. It'd be like a whole fucking thing. Like you'd need your tiger handler there to be like all right, you can touch him now because I have a tranquilizer dart loaded, ready to go if he goes off. like I just feel like it would be a novelty to have a tiger for like a couple of days. Then you'd be like, oh, fuck. I just spent $200,000 on this shitty thing.
0: <laughs> what the fuck am I going to feed this tiger?
1: <laughs> the person who buys a tiger, their only joy in life is like imagining feeding someone to a tiger. And so being able to tap into that is pretty powerful for someone like that.
2: Yeah, actually true. I think maybe I could probably get some joy out of that. Just like reclining at the end of a day, just thinking about all the people that I could feed to my tiger. That'd be nice. That's a nice pastime.
0: <laughs> it um it fucks me up every time I see uh like a, a news report from America where the police have raided a um like a, a drug dealer's house or somebody's <laughs> cracked in or whatever, and they're like, Yes, so they found they found all these guns and a bunch of drugs and an alligator. <laughs> more and more there's like also this extremely exotic, deadly
1: animal. happen to be you really want to go in on us with the exotic deadly animal thing
2: at least we keep them outside the house (laughs) 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 Uh, I was reading something this week that uh, Will Farrell has a 7 million dollar exotic bird collection (laughs) what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) It's fucked me up so much apparently he loves he just like he hangs out with his birds all the time so he has a very close relationship with his beautiful exotic South American birds (laughs) I love that you got to do something when you're rich, I guess.
0: Why not? Yeah. Why not?
1: I mean, seven million bucks, that's probably like, you know, five cents to me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. They didn't have the, uh, the conversion rate in the Australian version of the article. <laughs> so coming back, to our, coming back to our topic, I think uh, when we were talking uh, about you coming on the show, Everett, one of the things you said was, now, are people going to be offended if I say that I think that basically... Um, you know, Australian fringe conservatives are just copying American <laughs> ones. And I said, uh, absolutely not, because everybody is very aware mm, yeah. of that. Um, you know, a great, a great example of that is um, uh good, good friend, Corey Bernardi. Shout
3: out to Corey. Friend
0: of the show, Corey Bernardi. <laughs> Big fan of Corey. Mm. Friend of the show. So he was um, sent on an assignment, uh, some might say, quietly pushed away overseas so that we didn't have to hear about him for a while. He was sent away on a on a roll at the UN, and it happened to be during the whole um, 2016 election campaign, and all of Corey's dispatches were about how completely enamoured he was with Donald Trump and the Make America Great Again movement, and selfies of himself in his, um, he had a Make Australia Great Again uh, red hat <sighs> made, and everything. mm a big part of that just seemed like he didn't even seem like he admired Donald Trump the man, or how
1: could you? Well,
0: yeah, he didn't seem like he he admired the man himself or anything else. He just he purely seemed like he he was just enjoying, you know, making left wingers mad and just just winning, you know. Which I think is a is a very sort of I think that really comes back to some of the stuff that that Corey Robin writes about in that book which is is basically that like the one the one thing that unites all conservatives is having an antagonist to react to
3: triggering us
0: is having someone (laughs) to fight against you know yeah someone someone to trigger Mm. and if you take if you take those people away they kind of don't have a reason for existing i mean like you were saying um everett about sort of you know concocting a, a political ideology that's about saying no, you will be better off if we keep things how they are. That if you remove that that actual change and that antagonism, then uh, well, I suppose people would just be happy, you know, ruling as they used to, in feudal systems <laughs> and that sort of thing. I was hoping, I was hoping, Lucy, that you could hit us with um a little piece of an article.
3: Oh, this fantastic article!
0: Mm, it describes a little bit of his time in New York.
3: Mm, it's got some nice pictures of his very fashionable house. Which seems to have um, mm. paintings of him, several paintings of him. It's a strange man, but so one of him
2: in which he's <laughs> very normal, like mm. bending like a steel rod.
3: Yeah, I think that's meant to that be he's him. In front Why of? is he doing that?
0: <laughs> it's a whip. It's a whip.
3: Guys. Oh, it's a whip. This... <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, it's because nothing sexual there. Look, we're not all yeah. It's because geniuses, some of us
2: can't interpret art, and that's fine.
0: That was the painting that somebody did of him for the um I think for the Archibalds, um, which for your benefit Everett is a um, it's a yearly it's a yearly um art prize uh, in which people do portraits of prominent public figures, (laughs) and somebody did this uh, portrait of Corey in which he is creepily lit from below and bending a whip and he's smiling. It's very erotic. I find it quite erotic. Um, and I think that the.
1: That's so quaint—a portrait painting competition. We have
2: to do something to fill in the time.
1: It's <laughs> like something a charming seaside yeah. town would do, and your whole country does it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a whole—it's a—it's a big deal. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of writing about it every time it happens. Um, but I wonder if the theory was uh, that the person who wrote it thought of um, Corey as you know whipping people into shape, keeping keeping the Conservatives in line, because he's often kind of touted as the true voice of Conservatives in Australia.
3: Oh, he's keeping us lefties in line.
0: So, so Lucy, could you hit us with... Um... Oh,
3: yeah. I'll hit you with this fantastic anecdote. Late last year, Cory Bernardi was embedded in New York, relishing the Western world's biggest political upheaval in decades. Out on the street, beggars asked not only for loose change, but a vote for Hillary Clinton. At Starbucks, Bernardi would give his name as Trump, then pretend not to hear it, called out when his coffee was ready. (laughs) Oh, I'm triggered. What the fuck? I'm triggered. Like,
2: so let let me just... So his game here is he's forcing someone at a Starbucks just to shout Trump.
0: That's his end game? (laughs) Yeah. That was a big thing here. He wants the coffee as well, though, I assume. There was something around, like, Starbucks had, had done something vaguely political that oh yeah and of,
3: conservatives um, had this this whole thing really about ordering your coffee under the name trump
1: yeah it was a whole hilarious you know, movement yeah, yeah. That involved suburban people yelling at someone like all the best movements
0: <laughs> yep. seems
3: intelligent useful
0: <laughs> so look we can all we can all agree it was already very dumb but um but yeah, the the bit that really strikes me about that right at the end is just standing there and listening and not going and getting your coffee, just making the person yell it out over and over again and thinking to yourself, <laughs> yeah, all these people have to hear someone yelling Trump. And like, it just strikes me as so petty.
3: It is petty. I think the whole thing about conservatism is petty. It's just people that have grown up thinking that being contrarian is a personality trait and they've made it their whole <laughs> political view is to just upset people and think it's hilarious.
0: Whole political mm. personality.
2: I'm confused about the mechanics of it just in terms of like... So, I just, I'm just i really fixating on this. <laughs> he would get the coffee, right? He would still get the coffee. So the idea is he's got in. He, he needs to be close to where the barista is going to shout it from so that he can witness it, right? Because he wants to see everyone losing their shit because someone's yelling Trump, right? Yeah. So he's standing there. Yeah. Within sight, everyone can see that he's there. She yells it out, or he, whatever, yells out Trump a little bit, and then he just steps forward from where he's standing right there, and then claims it. So they're just like, "All right, you fucking asshole! You were right in front of me while I was yelling this out." Mm. I just don't. It's just not. Thank you
0: for letting me yell that six times.
2: Yeah, what you're just making someone's day worse, and then like being smug about it. You just know he'd take the coffee, be like, "Oh, I got you. I just wasted." Both of our time. <laughs> Thank
0: you. <laughs> yep, got your libs.
1: Well, something that always amazes me about these foreigners who get, you know, so attached to our, these, these conservative foreigners who get so attached to our leaders is, I mean, you know, Cory Bernardi, I'm assuming this guy considers himself some kind of Australian patriot, right? I mean, the yeah. conservative party, that's his deal. Um, so let me lay out the crimes of the Yankee Seppo Empire against Australia. I mean, we overthrew one of your governments you know, I mean, Australia is basically a part of our empire. You know, we have got military bases there. Mm. We went and got in a big fight when we were there in World War II. I mean, I can't imagine being like thinking of myself as an Australian patriot and then saying, oh, I love those guys, our, our imperial masters. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, and it's it goes to show you that it's not an, it's not an uh, affection that has to do with like, you know, practical politics. It's some tribal thing that they just... They like this guy and they like what he's up to and so they want to kind of be involved but i gotta say if you're an australian patriot and you love trump and you love america you are a cuck
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely mm. you yep. are a cuck you've been cucked from a very long distance <laughs>
2: <laughs> <That> long-range intercontinental <laughs> ballistic cucking <laughs> The fight in World War Two you're referring to—that wouldn't happen to be the Battle of Brisbane by any chance, would it? It would. Because that was, oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that story so much. Yeah, me too, me too. Because that was a, like a bunch of Australian guys just being like, "Oh, so you're gonna give all the Australian women stockings and lipstick? <laughs> we will fucking kill you."
1: <laughs> what and the fuck?
2: Yeah,
0: it's. I can't remember how I big I need, it was, but it was we like. I need this explained. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. For,
1: for the uninitiated, so, like, there were almost as many, like. During World War II, like 15% of the Australian population were American servicemen. And obviously, you get a bunch of American servicemen and a bunch of Australians together. They had a fight. And there was one incident in Brisbane where, like, they just, it was like a barb fight. And it just kind of spiraled and spiraled until basically the entire city was in a giant brawl fighting each other. They had to shut down the tram lines because people were just, like, driving around fighting each other. And it lasted, like, a day and a half of just, like, a a fight, a a really big fight. No one got killed, it was just fists, but people got really drunk and had a big fight for, like, a day and a half, an entire city, and, like, an army division.
2: It was basically around tensions. It's
0: extremely Brisbane.
2: Of, like, you get a bunch of American guys over here that have, they're a lot more affluent than the people that were living in Brisbane, they seemed a lot more exciting, and it was just, like... You know, if these guys are coming in all, like, fucking fit and fantastic and beautiful in their uniforms with all these, like, gifts that they can give to the women, then you look at yourself as someone that lives in Brisbane, as I do, and you're just like, oh, fuck, I'm a piece of shit. Oh, fuck. And then war. War is what oh, happens.
0: I, I have no recourse.
1: When all the Australians were, like, in North Africa and Burma and stuff fighting, and then these Americans were, like, waiting for new equipment from America, just, like, hanging out in Australia, kicking back, while the Australians were, off, you know, fighting in the war that both of our countries were in and uh i think that wrote some people the wrong way <laughs> <laughs> we
2: occasionally get like uh large deployments of like i don't know some u.s naval ships will dock in brisbane at one of our ports and you'll go out into our like one nightlife district and it's just like american <laughs> army personnel everywhere at every time i'm just like battle of brisbane <laughs> it's gonna happen again. I see. So gonna like? everybody thinks accidentally... that's great.
1: All these foreign troops on Australian soil. I mean, if he really, you know, had courage in his convictions, wouldn't he be? I mean, those guys are a lot more dangerous than the the, the Muslim menace. I'll tell you that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it and it's funny because that yeah the thing they, the the thing they like about that campaign, about Trump's campaign has nothing to do with. The concerns he's supposed to be addressing for America. They're not invested in those problems in any capacity. It's literally just like, oh, you've made the people I don't like upset, therefore (laughs) it's a good political movement, which is the literal worst basis to base your politics on in the world. Like, if your marker for success is that people are upset.
0: Yeah, there's so many ways where you can see, like um, like you were saying, anything where Trump has said, I'm going to get rid of the Affordable Health Care Act and I'm going to replace it with something way better and then he gets in and immediately goes oh fuck that that's actually really hard um i would have to you know i'd have to do a bunch of work people would all have to agree no fuck it forget it and you know you get a whole people a whole bunch of people who just come out and go oh yeah well but he's but he's the president and you don't like that so gotcha (laughs) Please, please contribute to my GoFundMe to pay for my cancer treatment. <laughs> I see so many of them. They're so sad.
1: That's an amazing thing is I used to um, have to deal with a lot of... I used to work in a hotel and deal with a lot of international tourists. And I think a lot of people are not aware. And I've seen this. I've yelled at some of your country's finest pundits on this about this on Twitter. <laughs> I think a lot of people are not aware that, like, literally there's no... Recourse for you if you don't have health insurance in the United States, there's nothing like it's not like, oh, you've Mm. got to use the government system. There is no government system. You're just fucked. There's nothing for you. And it's it's one of those things. It's like, I, I think, you know, unless you live here and have lived with that, it might not fully sink in that, you know, just how horrific the American status quo is. Doesn't matter though. I mean, they're 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 cool hats. This make they're, they're great hats. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, yeah. I enjoyed um. I enjoyed a couple of weeks ago uh, when several thousand people uh, all screamed at Chris Kenny at the same time, who's a columnist for the Australian. Um. When he when he tweeted to somebody, look, nobody in America dies from not having healthcare. <laughs> oh, that um, so that and, that argument came and, up a lot with,
2: after the Jimmy Fallon thing, where he was like you know, we took our baby in and they saved the baby and blah, blah, blah. And then everyone's like, oh, well, if you didn't have health insurance and you took the baby in, they have to save it anyway. Because they assume that every single medical problem you can have is something that gets fixed in an emergency room. Yeah. Like, Mm. you can't just go and be like, Mm. oh, shit, I have uh, diabetes. Can you give me the emergency cure for it right now, (laughs) even though I don't have insurance? Like, same with cancer, same with like long-term debilitating illnesses
0: you blast me without emergency chemo <laughs>
1: <laughs> because they um usually bill insurance companies the costs of these things are inflated beyond all reason. so like pretty much if you go into the hospital for a major thing without insurance um i mean you will be bankrupted there's no you know it, it'll be like if you went in with a serious condition that like you know like if you had a heart attack and the, they saved your life at the hospital they'd probably send you a bill for like three hundred thousand dollars or something i mean it's you know, there are ways to pay it back, but most people, it's pretty much, if you get sick, you know, well, you'll lose all your possessions and you get to start over with a bankruptcy on your credit report. And that's the system. Yeah. <laughs> so fucked up.
0: I, I saw a, an article this week about a, um, about, a like a one or a two year old who got a band aid in the emergency room, um, and then got a bill for $625.
1: Yeah.
3: Is that real? I got a bill Jesus once for Christ. a couple hundred bucks
1: yeah. for, uh, for Advil.
3: Um, Whoa. Yeah. How?
1: Well, you know, because 90% of people have insurance and don't care. You know, that's the insurance yeah. company's problem. Most people don't even see their medical bills. And so that only falls on people who are uninsured, who I think, you know, we've quite conclusively proven over the last couple of months no one in this country cares about. Hmm.
0: So um, so back onto our, onto our reactionary conservatism subject, I did want to bring up um, something that's popped up in Australia this week, which I feel is like a really a really nice topical representation of the kind of ideology we're talking about. That is Margaret Court, famous Australian tennis player, ironically named Margaret Court, (laughs) um, who I think won, won 25 grand slams, something like that. Uh, She, there is an arena named after her in Melbourne.
3: Melbourne. Yeah. Melbourne.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Um, So there's been a whole string of events where um, a lot of, Companies are coming out with pro same-sex marriage messaging. Uh, a lot of conservatives are furious about this, obviously, because it's very, it's very, very good to have freedom of speech and to be able to say what you believe in when you're, you know, ejecting someone from your business because you don't want to want to serve them because they are the wrong, <laughs> the wrong anything. Mm. Um, but it's also extremely bad when somebody uses that same freedom of expression to express a thing that you don't like. Which, you know, I would have argued for the old conservatives out there that um, it's a bit of the old supply and demand, all that kind of stuff. It's the free market. Mm. It's the market market saying, well, this is what 70% of the country seems to be into, so maybe we'll cater to that. They hate boycotts for some reason, which, you know,
2: with their deep and abiding love of the free market, that should be something where they're like, great, you know, the market has spoken. Freedom of choice. Like, yeah, that's fantastic. Like with the, the Coopers, there was a beer here that did some... Which is very middle of the road, like, hey, maybe people who think gay people aren't people and the rest of us can just get along oh, if we forget
1: about it. I saw that, yeah.
2: <laughs> and so everyone was like, well, cool, mm. man, we're not going to drink your beer. And then every conservative was like, how dare you exercise personal choice in not buying a beer? The state mandates you must drink this beer. That's right. Like They're all,
1: yeah, they they
2: hate the free market if it's being used in any way against them.
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing is they like the free market because it helps enforce these hierarchies that they like. When it stops doing that, they stop liking it. Um, You know, one of my favorite, um, and that's true of anything, you know, free anything that conservatives like. Um, My favorite example of that from the U.S. is, um, if you ask most U.S. conservatives, they'll tell you the American Civil War was fought over states' rights, not slavery. But in the 1850s, probably the single most unconstitutional bill to ever become a law in this country was something called the Fugitive Slave Act, which made you if so if you were a state like Massachusetts that had no slavery and black people were free in Massachusetts as white people, the Fugitive Slave Act said Massachusetts local law enforcement were required to arrest people who were fugitive slaves from the south. Under Massachusetts law, these people were completely free citizens. But this law required them to aid people from the south in retrieving their property. And so There were these spectacles of these people getting basically legally abducted by an act of congress um and it's the single probably the single biggest violation of states rights in american history states rights (laughs) and those are the exact people who pushed that were the states rights people from the civil war because that's a concept that they like when it helps them keep slaves it's not a concept they like when it um prevents them from keeping slaves
0: well funny you should say that actually because as much as as much as they hate boycotts so Margaret Court um, announced that because uh, Qantas, Australia's national identity airline, um, Qantas has an openly gay CEO, um, Alan Joyce, and see, openly or
2: overly is that openly
0: or uh, overly, overly gay? gay yes. <laughs> <Yeah. Okay>. uh- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sure. Well, I, I said openly, but you know, if that's how you, if that's how you see him, that's that's cool. I do. He's actually a bit too gay for me. <laughs> <laughs> mm, for the CEO of a company, turn it down, turn it down. Um, so she she came out, uh, she came out and said <laughs> that she would no longer be flying Qantas because they were they were bullying the population <laughs> with their pro same-sex marriage, pro equality messaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this generated a lot of flack. Um, there has been talk of renaming. Um, renaming the arena after someone who isn't shitty. <laughs> so, so the last, you know, week or so has been this, well, it's been, a, it's been a maelstrom of media appearances by Margaret as she goes on show after show and, you know, radio, conservative radio host after conservative radio host um, to tell them all about how she is being silenced, which is another, you know, favorite talking point mm. of the right which is, to, you know, to use your nationally syndicated newspaper column to claim that you are being silenced. <laughs> so, you know, she, she's gone on all these things to claim that she's, she's being bullied and isn't being allowed to have the freedom of speech to say these things. Uh, even though she's totally free to say them, people are just also free to say, well, fuck you, as a result. So it, it really stuck out in my mind, because I read, I read a review of uh, Corey Robbins' book written by Alan Walt, and he pulled out this particular quote from it which I will read as follows. Uh, Robin treats conservatives as activists rather than as stand Conservatism, he writes, has been a forward movement of restless and relentless change, partial to risk-taking and ideological adventurism, militant in posture and populist in its bearings, friendly to upstarts and insurgents, outsiders and newcomers alike. Burke, in Robin's view, began this tradition and figures such as Maitre, de Bonald and Sorel carried it forward. If we take all of them as the genuine articles, there is no need to draw a line between conservatives and reactionaries. All conservatives are reactionary. Conservatives are unified and united in their rage. Their most passionate hate is directed at those they believe were assigned by God or nature to second-class status, but still insist on their full rights as human beings." End quote. So um, it was after reading that, that I saw one of Margaret Court's 10,000 appearances uh, in the media, and This particular little line from her really jumped out at me. Do
2: you understand how hurtful it is for LGBTQI Australians when someone of your stature sort of actively promotes the idea that they're not equal to you, that you're better than them and deserve more?
3: They can lead... I I don't... I don't agree with you on that. I'm not saying I'm better than them. But you deserve marriage, and they don't. Is what you're saying between a man and well, it is because it's in the Bible. All right.
0: <laughs> so end quote. Q.E.D. And that that wound up being her. Yeah, her insistence for everything was well, God says so.
3: Yeah, that's that makes and, sense.
0: Um, yeah. Well, it's nailed down. It's nailed down. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it just really struck me how much that dovetailed together with that quote of um, of you know you can you can say all the things that you like as she does during that interview of I don't have anything against gay people they can live their lives they can do what they want but God has decreed that they will not enjoy the same institutions that I do. <laughs> yeah, you know those immutable laws of nature.
1: Well, something, that you know, the, the, your, your quote says that conservatives and reactionaries are really the same. I, I would disagree with that just in the sense that you, know, you take someone like that, she, she claims anyway that she's happy to let gay people live in society. She just doesn't want them to really have the same status as straight people. And I would say that's more of a conservative view as opposed to someone who's a real reactionary, which um, there are increasingly few of them these days who, you know, do hold the old line view that they should be physically punished in some way up to and including death mm-hmm. um i would say that those are i mean clearly that's the, that's sides of the same coin but i would say that there's a quantifiable difference there
0: uh let me put it to you that you have not heard some of the other quotes from <laughs> margaret's uh, margaret's back catalog <laughs> yeah. so you might have you might have picked up from there from that clip from the sound of it that uh margaret is extremely old and she is <laughs> and some people might say well it's not really fair to you know take a an eighty year old person or whatever and paint their their out of touch, out of time, old timey views as as being Yes, you know, as as being incompatible with contemporary life. Although, as a lot of this stuff started to come up around Margaret Court, um a lot of newspaper clippings started to pop up that illustrated the fact that Margaret Court has in fact always been a huge piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, I'm wondering, Ben, if you could maybe um, read to us uh, a little article about Margaret Court's um, love of South Africa.
2: Uh, yeah, so this was it's in someone's book, but quoting her talking to the New Zealand Herald, where she says, I love South Africa. I have many friends there. Of course, I will keep going to play. It is a tragedy that politics has come into sport, but if you ask me... South Africa has the racial situation rather better organized than anyone else, certainly much better than the United States.
1: <laughs> oh, better organized. Ugh, wow. the word choice on that.
2: Uh, and this was during apartheid. Like, it's this isn't just her commenting on, like, modern South Africa. She's explicitly pro-apartheid.
1: Yeah, the, the American conservative movement was extremely pro-apartheid. Uh, William F. Buckley, who's kind of held up by most modern American conservatives as kind of like the granddaddy of their intellectuals, uh, wrote some I mean even by the standards of the time really shocking stuff about South Africa like you know arguing that the blacks didn't have big enough brains to really be civilized and that's why they needed like the guiding hand of the whites um, Ugh. and you know that's the been, old white man's burden pardon the phrase whitewashed but um, you know that, that's the guy they mm. themselves call their founding father
0: there was another clip as well that, um, that I caught about caught about Margaret Court. Um so this one's from 1990 and uh this was when was when Martina Navratilova was um was Wimbledon champion so from this 1990 report Wimbledon champion Martina Navratilova is a poor role model for aspiring professional tennis players because she is a homosexual, (laughs) former Grand Slam winner Margaret Court says. Court, a winner of 25 Grand Slam titles, including three at Wimbledon, said in newspaper and radio interviews Wednesday that Navratilova's admitted homosexuality is a bad example for (laughs) younger players. Quote, she is a great player, but I'd like to see somebody at the top to whom the younger players can look up to, said the 47-year-old court. So she's only fucking 47 at this point. It is very sad for children to be exposed to it. Wow. Ugh.
3: You're an old bitch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is an interesting angle to me. Uh, Court said some players had been led into homosexuality by other senior players, but did not name them. She also said she believes Navratilova was influenced into a lesbian lifestyle during her early years on the pro tour.
1: If you want to get good at tennis, this is what you got to do.
0: This, in some way, ties into um, what I think you could definitely classify as Margaret's very reactionary views about trans people today. She's uh, she's been out there saying some really unpleasant stuff about about trans people in the media, mm. and a lot of it is along the lines of that they that they have somehow you know been been forced into this or tricked into it by someone. Um, which definitely seems to be in line with her ideas about homosexuality, which is that, that people are tricked into it by somebody at some point.
2: She doubled down on that in an interview this week as well. Like After all the controversy unfolded, she was on a Christian radio program and very much implied that homosexuality is a condition that you overcome and also that people are tricked into becoming lesbians. There was a wonderful quote where she said, I mean, tennis is full of lesbians because even when I was playing, there was only a couple there. But those couple took the young ones into parties and things, <laughs> implying that parties turned them gay. Mm. Which I mean, they did for me. So, well, that's <laughs> conclusive. Yeah, the science is there. <laughs> How good at tennis are you, though? <laughs> Awful, actually.
0: <laughs> Very bad. Funnily enough, I was talking to my to my my wife about this. Friend of the show, my wife <laughs> Eleanor. <of> <laughs> Hi, wife? Andrew's wife. <laughs> I'd love to email her sometime. <laughs> Please, we've talked about this. Do not, <laughs> do not email friend of the show, my wife. I will not. And she, she just kind of pointed something out about this when we were talking about it, which had not clicked with me at all. Um, which is, she said, you know, the way she, the way she talks about this, it kind of makes it sound like maybe she herself had a gay experience while she was on tour when she was younger, and now that is, that's what you know, what how she thinks. Being gay happens to people, you know, that maybe while she was on tour, something happened with her and she was like, because she is, you know, a born again Christian. Mm. So maybe, maybe that's her take on it now. She's like, oh, that's what happens. You're confused. Somebody tricks you into it. And then it sticks. And then you're gay.
2: Homosexuality is a socially contagious
0: disease. (laughs) Well, when, when you think about it, it's that sort of thing, I think would be very in keeping with the kind of Christianity that thinks that, you know, you can... You can pray the gay away that um that it's just a, a lapse in judgment or or something like that. That it's well, she's she's actually explicitly this week referred to you know things like that being the devil at work.
3: Hmm. Fair enough.
0: Oh yeah, I have that that
2: wonderfully coherent quote right here. <laughs> uh, that this was in reference to uh, transgender children. She said, "That's all the devil, but that's what Hitler did." And that's what communism did. She got <laughs> the mind of the children. There's a whole plot in our nation and in the nations of the world to get the minds of
1: the children. <laughs> Pretty scary stuff. Oh wow, that's that's
2: demented. Uh, yeah, she's uh, not a well person. I mean, it
1: goes to show that you know, it's for all these people, it's very important to prove that you know that the existing you know structure of our family lives is natural and permanent, mm. and that you know anything that is you know interfering with that is therefore by definition kind of you know unnatural and you know evil because you know they put a lot of stock in these hierarchies and you know homosexuality transgendered people that kind of calls them into question and i think you know that's why there's this obsession Mm. with proving that it's unnatural or that it's you know it's by someone else's design it's not someone's natural feelings
2: Mm. And the, the the great lengths they go to to try and prove that it's, like, worse for kids, because that's always the argument that they use, being like, oh, if you've got gay parents, oh, it's
3: always about you kids. turn out
2: really bad. And then all the studies they do are just like, no, nope, gay couples actually tend to have slightly happier kids, statistically. Like, just that all the tests have done is generally showing that, you know, because it has been traditionally harder yeah. for gay couples to have children. You're really going to be committed to having kids before you can actually have them.
1: Well, and if you want to stack up having gay parents versus, you know, growing up in some kind of, you know, state care situation, that doesn't seem like much of a contest.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, Just one more thing that I thought was kind of interesting about this is that two different people described what was happening, or at least the response to people suggesting the Margaret Court Arena be renamed was they described it as an equivalent to the, I don't even know if it's really a thing, but the way Miranda Devine described it. Uh, and I think Kate McGregor used the same reference, was saying that it was this, the, like the Roman practice of removing someone from history entirely, <laughs> like scrubbing their name out from the history books. Like, mm. okay, no one's like deleting her like government ID number and like wiping her off the map. Like, we're not erasing her she by history. She can still have
0: a Wikipedia page. Yeah,
2: exactly. She can still have a Wikipedia page. She can still exist on the internet. We're just saying, hey, we probably don't have to celebrate someone who's like a racist homophobe. But they're trying to draw parallels being like, oh, you know... We can't just ignore the bad parts of our history. Like, well, we're not ignoring it. We're looking at it and saying, hey, this sucks. Let's not celebrate it.
1: They could build a monument to, like, how awful she is.
2: I'd See, I'd support that. Let's build, like, a new <laughs> arena, but it's an arena that really sucks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there's a perfect parallel to that taking place in the U.S. at the moment with the removal, you know, statues in the South commemorating the Confederates.
1: We got one in our town square.
0: Are they going to destroy it?
1: there's there's no one there's no plan to destroy it but there is a guy there's a black guy in our town who basically just hangs out by it and will explain to you why it's bad and he's very good at it and i think that's awesome that that guy has taken it on himself to you know just you know counter propaganda against this fucking eyesore of a statue
2: if that guy's got a patreon i will support it (laughs) i will
0: absolutely absolutely support that all right well um Maybe we should wrap it up there and move on to the final segment of the show. Everybody's favorite. It's the
3: mailbag. It's the mailbag. Yeah.
0: Now, I asked for some questions uh, this week that, that hopefully will either be of interest or at least interpretable uh, by everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and as usual, um, Twitter being Twitter, everybody has gone in the complete opposite direction. Uh, so I've picked a, picked a few here. Oh, question number one. Uh, from friend of the show Matt Brady, uh, who will be joining us next week.
1: Oh God! Good luck with that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My question is this: Please tell Trillburn he's a bloody drongo and a proper ledge. Good question. Uh, now that's a classic Australian. Um, you get you get the you get the compliment, but you also get the little the little neg. I feel like negging is very Australian. Negging is extremely mm. Australian. Bloody drongo.
1: Is that what playing the wet prawn is? <laughs> what is that what playing the wet prawn is
3: is that real
1: <laughs> i don't know i thought it I was i don't know if that's an expression this is like an inverse of the pooper discussion
0: <laughs> oh is this sorry sorry are you in fact referring to um coming the raw prawn as in someone saying oh. don't come the, the raw prawn with me."
1: excuse me coming the raw prawn i don't i
3: don't even know what that means to be honest what does it mean oh, okay okay <laughs> I mean, I've heard it. I just, I just, I don't get it.
1: I don't know what it means. I'm not from that country.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You're not, you're not fucking with me, are you? Don't don't come a raw prawn with me.
3: All right. I'll start using that one. I like it.
0: Good. Good. I'm coming prawns. (laughs) Lucy will be yelling. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So second question. That was a, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt, for that one.
1: Thank you.
0: And just so you know, ledge, ledge is clearly um, an abbreviation of legend. Oh. Just so you know, it's a compliment. You are not in fact a ledge
1: Debatable.
0: So we have another question here from uh yeah. Friend of the show, uh beautiful Nikki. Hi
3: Nikki.
0: Wine Mum on Twitter, if you're looking for him. Hi Nikki. Uh she asks, Where is Harold Holt?
1: In our hearts.
0: Now you might need a little context here.
1: <laughs> I know he's the Prime Minister who fell in the ocean.
3: Oh, well, there we go. You don't
1: need any context. <laughs>
0: He went. He went swimming one day, and he never returned. I've had my eye out for him. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it.
2: My, uh, for some reason, when I was like nine or ten, maybe younger, we went to the beach that he disappeared at, and my mum made some like throwaway <laughs> reference to how there were like conspiracy theories that he got picked up by a Russian submarine and like mm. yeah
1: i've read that that oh, yeah.
2: stuck with me so now just ever since i've just assumed that's exactly what happened to him he was like much like the end of hail caesar he was just like sort of out there jumped on board the boat u <laughs> boat i guess no that's a german one he jumped on the submarine yeah
3: yeah i agree seems reasonable
0: i prefer to think i prefer to think that he is in cuba with tupac <laughs> uh, <laughs> um and Probably Elvis as Elvis, well, and there by now very elderly, grandfatherly figure Adolf Hitler. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I, I will raise that he's in Argentina with Hitler right now.
1: They solve Ooh. mysteries together. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hitler and Holt, Private Eyes. <laughs> All right, here's um here's another Australian historical question, which I don't know if, if you um if you have any background on. Uh, friend of the show, Mason McCann asks dear friend could australia have won the great emu war of 1932 with australian military assistance
1: american military assistance i assume you mean
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> um so are you are you familiar with the great emu war of 1932
1: i'm not i am there's a dollop episode about it oh wow
0: oh god damn
3: what's the emu war
0: right across australian history
1: here uh well basically they um there was a they fought a war against the emus they were trying to kill them all the australian army fought is this real yeah, they are. Uh, and they, they lost some of the engagements. They got overwhelmed by the emus.
3: Are you guys fucking with me?
1: <laughs> no, this
0: is absolutely no. real. <laughs> no, no, no. In the, so, so 1932, there were a bunch of farmers complaining that um, emus were fucking up their crops and their farms and okay. stuff. And in an effort to be seen to be responsive to this, um, politicians elected to deploy a bunch of army units with... Um, Oh, what were the type of guns, the type of machine guns?
1: Lewis guns, I think, yeah.
0: Lewis guns, yes. Um, so and they they were thinking,, oh, yes, we'll go out and we'll mow down thousands of emus <laughs> in a big pile with these machine guns.. Jesus and it turns out that when you when you have a flock of emus um, and you have a whole bunch of loud uh, people all cruising towards them, they just turn around and fuck off. Oh. So they found them incredible they found them incredibly hard to hit. Um, they, they were taking people out there for, you know, however long at a time and coming back with like a dozen dead emus. (laughs) I did like, there was a little, oh yes. Uh, troops were deployed with orders to assist the farmers and according to a newspaper account to collect 100 emu skins so that their feathers could be used to make hats for light horses. (laughs) (laughs) So basically they, they had to give up, um, On the 8th of November, representatives in the Australian House of Representatives discussed the operation. Following the negative coverage of the events in the local media that included claims that, quote, only a few emus had died. (laughs) (laughs) The military personnel and the guns were withdrawn on the 8th of November. After the withdrawal, Major Meredith compared the emus to Zulus and commented on the striking maneuverability of the emus, even while badly wounded. (laughs) Quote, if we had a military division with the bullet carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus who even dum dumb bullets could not stop.
3: Wow.
0: Uh, that was before they had a. That was before they had a second attempt that they still fucked up.
1: Well, I, I mean, I think the American military in that period of time might have actually been smaller than the Australian military. We like did not have an army until mm. World War Two pretty much really um, wow. that said all things are possible with american military power <laughs> And again in that part of the world we have not always had the best track record so i don't know toss up
0: well you guys you guys didn't have the nuke yet because um you know if if you had had that you could have just dropped one of them on the middle of the country sorted it all out
3: i really wish i wish you did
0: i think that's actually the official origin story of
2: mad max <laughs> that's like how that universe came about <laughs> trying to kill the- those emus
1: Cory Bernardi would still love Trump if he nuked the middle of Australia. I guarantee it.
2: Oh, I love it. He'd be like, "Oh, all these leftards crying just because we <laughs> nuked all the major cities in Australia." I love it.
0: I relish it. I was um I was actually trying to remember something about this recently. It was, and it turned out I had it. I couldn't find any information about it online, and it turns out it was because I had it confused in my head. Um, I thought that the emu war was about camels.
1: What? <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> Wouldn't that be the Camel War?
0: Well, no, but Australia does have the world's largest population of wild camels. Mm. And that is because when the railroads were being built, um, they they brought over a bunch of camels because they, they're good for cruising around in the sand and everything. Um, and when they were done, they just kind of cut them all loose. And... Uh, oddly enough, it turns out that if you just release a whole bunch of wild camels into the Australian desert, um, they will continue being camels and breed like crazy and really fuck up the local environment. So I I understand that there have been efforts to cull them at different points. So at some stage, my mind had had crossed this up with the emu war, and there I was a couple of weeks ago looking for information about. Mm. Um, about the time we sent the army out to kill the camels, and that never happened.
1: Well, I think Trump's got his war. There you go. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder when the
2: exact point in history is that we figured out that introducing, like, quickly breeding feral species, uh, like, quickly breeding foreign species to the country was bad. It was like, ah, oh, the camels. Yeah, that'll be fine. Cane toads. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that'll probably be okay. Foxes. I imagine we can't have any Bring problems with in. that. Yeah, just constantly, like deer no nothing bad will happen (laughs) Mm.
0: here's my take we're not there yet
2: (laughs) every time i see stories where they're like scientists have come up with like a type of disease that will kill off this in plants that but only the bad things i'm like no 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 this is absolutely like how the country gets turned into like a dust bowl it's because same sort of (laughs) Mm. hubris
0: yes i'm pretty sure this was this was the start of the walking dead or something yeah all right so we got one last question here uh a friend of the show Arden Sedlins, rolls off the tongue, um, asks, and I feel like this will be relevant to you, Everett, uh, the pros and cons of historical analogies for contemporary events and or pop history books, yay or nay?
1: Uh, Well, personally, I actually love pop history stuff. I mean, that's how I got interested in history. Um, So I'm pro. I mean, I think, you know, Yeah, they're not going to give you necessarily the best understanding of everything. But for most people, that's fine. You don't I don't think the average person needs to have like a really in-depth understanding of like the economic origins of the French Revolution. Uh, And then for everyone else, I mean, that's how people Mm. get interested in history. You know, that's how you, you know, more scholars are born as they get into that stuff and then they want to dig deeper. So, um, yeah, they've got their problems sometimes and sometimes, you know, something that's kind of the. The favorite pop history book is something I think sucks and that's a shame but generally I think it's good um, as far as analogies they're very good in theory but in practice no one knows the fuck they're talking about ever <laughs> people just don't read the way they used to you know people from like the 19th century were very literate in history and particularly like classical history and that's just not true anymore people just don't you know they don't have the basic tools you need to make those well and so I would say, you know, 90% of the ones you see or hear are terrible and should be ignored. It's also, I mean, the real, the real test, I think is if you look, you know, most of them are just thrown in there to make someone look smart. And I think the real test of that is, you know, you look at, you know, if you read one, you know, some analogy to history and there's no real analysis of it. It's just like thrown in there and like, well, this is a similar situation moving on, you know, (laughs) that's window dressing and it annoys me, but um, yeah, they're not bad in theory, just do them well.
0: Well, there you go. Um, You have your answer, Arden. All right, well, I think that we might have to wrap it up there. But uh, we want to thank you very much for joining us on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. That was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, and I would also urge people to check out your podcast, um, Age of Napoleon, which I'm really into for the same reasons, because you know, uh, I think some people might recognize you from your appearance on um, Chapo Trap House, where you came on to sort of discuss all of the... I guess, the, the historical significance of a lot of the you know, characteristics and set pieces of Ridley Scott's uh, The Duelist. And that, that was really interesting to me. I got a lot out of that and, um, and how, um, how much that added to the movie. And it also got me onto uh, listening to your podcast when that started. So I would advise people, check out Age of Napoleon on iTunes. Um, and check him out on Twitter at Age of Napoleon. Well, thanks, bud. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.
3: Bye.